0: Greetings and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan. And for this episode of Ecologic, we're joined by Panama Bartholomew. He's the founder and the executive director of the Building Decarbonization Coalition, doing incredibly important work in the fight against climate change. Delighted to have Panama on the podcast today. Panama, welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. It's great to have you on the podcast today.
1: Really excited to be here, Ted.
0: Yeah, and I know that you've been I know that you've been suffering uh, your whole family with COVID and more. uh, So I really appreciate you taking a few few minutes to talk about uh, building decarbonization. So let's let's go let's go all the way back. Uh, Born and raised, uh, I think you mentioned in uh,
1: southern Humboldt County indeed yep i was raised by wolves basically uh, back to the landers in southern humboldt county in california um, raised on the the marijuana orchards um, of the 1970s and somehow escaped and got into building decarbonization and climate change instead but um all jokes aside i think it was a it was a good upbringing and that it really exposed me early on to things like passive solar design and solar photovoltaic at really the beginning of those movements in the late 70s and the early 80s. And so even though I didn't realize it till later in life, um, it's always been some of my roots is looking for ways to get off of fossil fuels and get buildings and industries off of fossil fuels. Oh, interesting. What did you
0: think you might be when you grew up? Did you have any of those thoughts like I'm going to be a fireman or I'm going to be a policeman or I'm going to be the president or?
1: Well, Ted, I come from a long line of bureaucrats. And uh, my, my, my grandfather was the deputy director of the Food and Drug Administration um, in, uh, for a number of years. And so I was really sure that I was either going to be a scientist or a lawyer, um, which didn't go over well in the, the back to the lander movements of the, uh, the early 80s of Southern Humboldt. But uh, I ended up spending quite a bit of time working in state government in California, and, and now find myself trying to influence uh, governmental policy. So it's it's pretty far, pretty far from the roots. Right.
0: It, it turns out I think a lot of us had no idea how we were going to, wh- what life was going to have in store for us. And we look back and we look at the how our career has woven its way along and somehow mysteriously, but uh, magically, uh Turned into such a great career. Well, you went to you went to college in at Humboldt, uh, where I went as well. As we were talking about, in restorative development, what does that mean? Restorative
1: development. I went to school at a really great time in the California State University system when they were allowing you to really craft your own education, and um, I wanted to find a way to be able to bring together uh, policy. Uh, botany and natural resources planning um, into one degree and focus on how do we bring about development patterns that could actually be net positive uh, for the environment and society rather than destructive. And so, you know, pretty egalitarian and the kind of stuff you think about and talk about when you're in college, when you're an undergraduate. And I was lucky enough to be able to not only be able to craft a career or craft a um, a degree around that but actually get a job um, out of those those sorts of ideas and so it was a uh, amazing education at uh at humboldt state and still look back on some of my my favorite years and it provided me i think with a really solid understanding of not only the importance of looking after our natural systems but also um making sure that we're keeping in mind the humanity um, of our solutions and that if we're too focused on the natural systems, without taking into account uh, the humans that we have to, quite often, not only will you not get stuff done, but you can be causing um, harm that you that you weren't uh, that you weren't planning on and collateral damage. So, a nice, well-rounded, I think, foundation for what I ended up doing with the rest of my life. Really interesting.
0: You you mentioned the term net positive. We for the, for a while this podcast was called the net positive because I'm just such a an advocate in net positive solutions, not net neutral, uh, but actually you know going beyond and uh, and, and also this human dimension. I, I worked at Rocky Mountain Institute; I was the first energy program direct, director there, and and we were we were such a techie organization. Amory Lovins, who's just a wonderful guy. Uh, just he's just such a technologist, and so and I came along with this whole sense. You've got to marry you, you just like you, you. You we share that. We, you've got to marry all these great innovative technologies with that human dimension if we're, gonna, if we're gonna really prevail. Humboldt to UC Davis for your graduate degree, community development. That sounds like a logical extension of what you had been doing, right?
1: Yeah, and I wish I'd put more into my time at UC Davis. Um, incredible school, I think. Um, you know, they're building out whole institutes around energy efficiency and climate change and alternative transportation. It's just incredible time there right now. Um, I was obsessed with my work at the time, to be honest. I was working at the California State Architects Office. I was running a brand new sustainable schools program, figuring out how we can, you know, out, out here in California. Um, we educate one in every 10 kids in America. Um, you know, down in LA alone, um, there's one in 50 kids in America is educated at LA Unified School District. And there's this billions of dollars we put into infrastructure for schools here in California. and I was trying to run a program that was going to change not only about the impact that those schools had on the environment through their consumption of energy, but also the impact that those schools had on kids and teachers and staff. And how do you create safe learning environments from an indoor air quality, indoor environmental quality perspective? Um, How do you get good daylighting and views in there? So I was running that program and I was obsessed with that and um, didn't, I think, put as much into uh, my time at UC Davis as I would have liked. They have an amazing community development program that really teaches you how to bring about Um, social change within community movements and uh, for community benefit and a great program somehow got out of there uh, with a degree Um, but uh, yeah it was already the bug the bug for the work had already bitten I was focused on that.
0: Now when you said the sustainable schools program is that within the division of the state architect's office? So I always think the DSA as being this regulatory body that makes it difficult to do solar projects uh, but but
1: yeah, whenever I went and spoke to groups, I would have to apologize up front. like I'm here from the division of the State Architect. and first just like to say I'm sorry um, for all the trauma that we've inflicted on you and, and your organization. Um, but, but yeah, under uh, under Gray Davis and then Schwarzenegger, they were trying to really step up about um, around sustainability in schools.
0: And this is before all the prop thirty nine funds is well before all that that well before. Many companies like mine, we work. Well, I think we worked for about twenty different school districts, helping them use that effectively. Use that money. Uh, so you went from the, the DSA job. You went to the California Conservation Corps for a, a stint as well. Um, yeah, they're well known for being at on the school sites doing the lighting retrofits and, and more. Right.
1: Pretty amazing program. Still, you know, it was created by Jerry Brown v one. Um, where at its very heart, it was called the ecology Corps, and it was for, um, it was for, uh, there's a term for it, but, um, conscientious objectors, mm-hmm. um, during the Vietnam war, it was for conscientious objectors in California, they could, um, serve in this new ecology core, um, and, and therefore be able to still give back to society without killing people. Um, And that eventually became the California Conservation Corps, amazing program. It takes youth of all walks of life, puts them through a two-year program, teaches them what it is to have a job, how to show up on time, how to work hard, helps them get their GED if they haven't got that, helps them go through community college if they want to do that, gives them a lot of really good skills, everything from You know, trail building to construction skills to working on like Caltrans crews to working on backcountry fire suppression, Uh, just an amazing, amazing program that's changed thousands of lives. And I was brought in to try to find a way to really bring the core into the 21st century for um sustainability and green building pro- and how do we build up a green building program within the cal- within the conservation corps. So had a great few years there and um still have a really warm spot in my heart for, for that organization.
0: Huh I didn't re- I didn't realize those roots that, that's really good to good to learn. From there you went to the California Energy Commission. And that was and that,
1: 80- right. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I was I was ready to, you know, move back up to the North Coast and and you know settle down into a life of probably local politics on the North Coast of California. And um at the very last minute, one of my mentors saw me in a meeting. We hadn't seen each other in a couple of years, and she looked at me across the meeting and made eye contact and gave me the I'm watching you signal and uh after the meeting she came up and she said where have you been i've been looking all over for you and what are you doing and i told her and she's like well where are you going and i told her i'm going back up to the north coast and she said why are you doing that nothing's happening there the chairman of the energy commission wants to hire you to be her advisor and let's go and uh Totally changed my life. I got to go and work for two amazing chairwomen at the California Energy Commission, the big regulatory body in California over energy planning body and um, amazing job gave me basically everybody in the energy space at one point or another comes through the Energy Commission um, to talk about whatever they're working on, whether it's efficiency or renewables or fossil fuels, um, research implementation. And I just got to meet everybody um, in the industry and build a really, really solid network of incredible people um, at a pretty incredible time um, in the organization. By the time I left, they had about 500 staff people. They're up to 750 staff people right now. And so it's um, as energy becomes an increasingly important part of our society, um, and the transition in particular, the energy transition becomes an important part. Um, organizations like that have had to grow to figure out how to help plan, oversee, accelerate, and regulate that transition. So mm-hmm. it was a really amazing time. I was there for the, um, end of Schwarzenegger and then coming into Jerry Brown version two, um, at the commission. Yeah. Oh, exciting.
0: You went to the assembly then who, who was your, you were working for what assembly member?
1: John A. Perez, he was the speaker at the time. And so I was his uh, environmental and energy advisor. Um, And just learned a lot from the man. Um, You know, he was a union negotiator at age 15. Um, and just spent his whole career um, negotiating. And so by the time he got to, in his early 40s, to the legislature, um, he was a master negotiator and immediately was elected as uh, speaker um, of the assembly um, when he came in. So just learned a ton from him about negotiation and politics and arm twisting. Um really incredible man he wouldn't take any meeting over 15 minutes you know if you if you, if you can't get a done in 15 minutes then it means you weren't ready for a meeting with him um in the time and it was uh, it was great he represents uh, south central uh he represented south central la and uh yeah really incredible leader for for california oh how exciting and then and then it sounds like you went off to europe at that point you went to
0: this investor confidence project and is that right where were you based in europe and what how did that come about that that's a big leap
1: yeah i was what's called a love pat um i followed my future wife um who got a great job um over in the netherlands working for an electricity company and um we found ourselves among the cloggies Um, we were um, in the far east uh, nothing's too far in the Netherlands, but we were in the east near the German border in a little city named Arnhem, uh, made famous by the uh, by the movie A Bridge Too Far, um, and where a famous World War II battle was fought. And unlike Amsterdam or The Hague or Rotterdam, where there's you know a lot of expats, we it was it was us and the Dutch. Um, And so I was there for four years and I was working on a project that was trying to find ways to bring capital to building energy retrofits. Um, And the, the big problem that bankers and investors always have with building energy efficiency retrofits is that every project is done in its own particular unique way and what investors need is they need scale and in order to get scale you need some level of consistency um, and some level of standardization and you need to be able to bring together hundreds and then thousands of building projects that are all going to save money um, to be able to invest in but you need to be able to have faith confidence that there's that those savings are actually going to materialize Mm -hmm. and without some sort of standardized way to develop these projects there's what you're getting is just binders and binders of of pdfs and excel spreadsheets and bankers and investors like that's not their deal like they want to bank and invest they're not engineers And then they're having to hire engineers to explain what all the PDFs and the Excel spreadsheets mean in order for them to be able to invest. And that cuts into their profit. So it's a huge problem in the industry. And so this investor confidence project started by the Environmental Defense Fund was all about finding a way to standardize project development. Um, all the way through from the weather files and how you which you use and how you use them all the way through to how you commission a project and everything in between and that standardization could result in a seal or a certification that basically said this project was developed using best practices and you should have confidence that the savings are going to be realized if this is carried out in this way and so that's one thing to do in America where, you know, everybody speaks, you know, English and everybody is generally using certain standards. Um, I was trying to do that across Europe. I was trying to find a way to standardize across French, English, German, Belgian, Austrian, Bulgarian. We ended up with about 31 countries and we developed one major certification that was able to incorporate all of the different national standards um, into one uber um, international certification so that you as a Bulgarian engineer would be able to follow Bulgarian's best practices but still result in an international certification that could then be used by an English banker to understand like this is a good energy efficiency project and so I was uh, running that program for about three years over in Europe
0: And, and after putting that all together you were so exhausted you had to you had to leave the country and <laughs> come back to america now, that's an amazing story let's talk about now let's talk about this building decarbonization coalition because this is such an exciting topic and such a challenging topic but um how did you form the coalition i mean your website is amazing you have uh, the, the 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 groups your your trailblazers which i guess are your major sponsors and then you got your decarbonizers or your the next level of sponsors, you've got all your early adopters, which I think Ecomotion should be on that list. Uh, you got all the enthusiasts, but you've, you've created, a, you, you've you really, uh, it seems like you've put your arms effectively around a whole area that there's so much interest in right now. How do we decarbonize our buildings? How did that come
1: about? Sure. So what you have, what you just described there, Ted, is a bunch of organizations that have recognized that. There's no way for us to meet our clean air or our climate pollution goals while still burning gas in buildings. And the reality is that gas right now is the fastest growing uh, climate pollutant in the world. Um, It's a major contributor to outdoor air quality problems in our metropolitan areas across America. In California, in fact, um, it's burning gas in buildings produces more nitrogen oxides that are the chief component of smog that all of our power plants and cars combined. And it's also having a heavy effect on indoor air quality. Um, the The rate of studies that have come out over the last few years um, really show a direct correlation between um, the children growing up in homes with gas stoves um, and their predilection to end up with asthma significantly um, increased as a result of living with those gas stoves. Um, but perhaps even one of the most tragic, that wasn't tragic enough, um, impacts of living with gas is is just the cost, the economic cost that it's going to bring to our communities. Um, what gas infrastructure really is, it's a 60 to 80 year investment from the rate payers that pay the utility in order to be able to put that investment in the ground and then put gas through it. And the dirty secret of the gas industry is that the vast majority of profits um, come from building and maintaining pipeline um, rather than actually selling the gas. And in America, of gas utility revenue comes from placing pipe in the ground and then maintaining it. Um, Less than 5% comes from actually selling the product. And so what your gas utility is, it's not a gas utility, it's an infrastructure entity and that's why they fight so hard to put new pipe in the ground and that's why they're so supportive of safety standards where it requires heavy maintenance and a regular schedule of upgrading them and so every time we have utilities putting this this pipe in the ground you're basically tying the communities on that pipe to 60 to 80 years of continued um, investment in it and right now what we have the gas industry likes to brag that we have about one um, one customer every minute is being added to the gas system in America. And so I I say all that just to paint the picture of some of the dangers of of gas, um, some of the impacts. And so when I got back from Europe, I looked around and I saw that we had a whole bunch of different entities, manufacturers of heating equipment, environmental groups, utilities, government agencies, all wanting to work on solutions for how do we get buildings off of the gas system? But the thing is, they were all working alone. They're all working by themselves in their own silo. And even though some of them would be talking about the same barriers and similar solutions, you didn't have a forum that could really bring all these entities together and seek to identify where the areas of agreement were and what we could work on together. And it's always my belief after about 20 years in climate, that the the best solutions and the most politically resilient and market ready are the ones that come from the widest variety of voices. And so we created this coalition, which is the coalition of utilities, manufacturers, the design and construction community, government agencies and nonprofits to come together to try to find ways to completely decarbonize the building stock in America through both policy mechanisms as well as market solutions, because ultimately the two of them have to be tied together the policy can't leave the market behind and the market won't move unless the policy is really given the direction. So we've been alive for about uh, four years. We've seen it go from nobody talking about building decarbonization to now being one of the, you know, top line pieces of communication in the in the climate fight. And then you've got,
0: what, New York City with what, what is that, that local law? What is it? 97. What is it? Local law ninety-seven um, that is requiring buildings to cut their carbon. Use. So, how does I, I, I get? I, I think the policy is is uh, fascinating. Uh, getting the getting the policymakers aligned and overcoming the some of the forces, the vested interest that want to keep selling gas. But the technology, Panama. If you have a high-rise building in New York City, and that's got big boilers in the basement for space heating and water heating. How do you decarbonize that? How, what's the what are some of the technologies that we can look towards now to to accomplish that?
1: Yeah, um, you know, you brought up the policy piece, and I'll just say that right now we have um, about eighty eight communities across America that have adopted a ban on gas in new construction, um, including New York City, San Jose. Um, and in quarter one of next year, um, L.A. and San Diego, we expect to, to join that group and we'll be over 100 probably by the middle of uh, of next year. And the state of Washington just became the first state to say that all water heating and space heating equipment and all construction is going to need to be heat pumps. And that leads me to the answer to your second question, which is heat pump technology. And um, and you brought up one of the challenging building types is you know high rises um the good news is that while america doesn't have a lot of experience in all electric building construction there is a lot of experience for this in other countries In countries such as japan and countries such as china and countries such as those across europe have a lot more experience with large-scale all-electric construction And so you do have things like central heat pump water heaters um, that can provide um, continuous hot water throughout an entire building, um, whether that's for domestic hot water use um, or whether that's for um, radiant heating use and like the the radiators of New York um, that you think about. The challenge is we don't have a lot of experience with it here in America. The design community hasn't used it a lot. They don't know how to engineer around it. They haven't used it a lot. And so anytime you you know, haven't designed a, a building, you have a certain level of trepidation around new technology or new approaches. And so we're working a lot with the manufacturers right now about not only bringing in this technology from Japan and Australia and Europe, but also how do we support the design and construction community so that they're going to be able to understand this and have enough confidence to be able to start installing it in buildings. And and
0: that I mean I can see that the, the new construction as challenging as it may be is much more straightforward than the retrofit of course. Yeah. Is, the larger the building it seems like the the retrofit becomes that much more challenging. Let me let me hit you with a really pedestrian question which is everybody asks. I mean and it almost feels silly asking you the question, but, you know, all the kitchen equipment, you know, we, you keep hearing everybody everybody saying, I, I can't get rid of my gas stove. I and mean, we have a beautiful gas stove here. Big deal. Um, but are we are we getting past that barrier to building decarbonization that, that the people are going to have to just let go of their their gas
1: cooktops? Yeah, it's a good question and allows me to provide a bit more context, too. So when you're talking about building decarbonization or getting off of natural gas, you're basically talking about four appliances, Um, your space heating system, your water heating system, your cooking system, and then your clothes drying system. There are other smaller uses, like maybe a gas fireplace or maybe a pool heater or an outdoor barbecue that you may have piped. But generally, it's those four major appliances um depending on the climate zone you're in and how cold it gets um your your space heater and your water heater use about uh, use about 90% of the gas um that you consume um in a building or in a home and your cooking in the residential space is about 3% of your gas use on average is higher in commercial buildings because um you don't have a lot of heating in a lot of commercial buildings and so it's a higher percentage the cooking but it's not a lot of the emissions of the building and it's not a lot of the gas use. And so a lot of people will say like, you know, should you really bother with the stove? It's like nobody cares about like their water heater as long as the shower is warm. You know, like, why do you bother with a stove? Like let's just get 90% of the emissions and the gas use out with those two appliances. Just let people enjoy their gas stove. And there's two really distinct challenges with that. Um, One is you're never going to be able to get off of gas completely um, unless you do get rid of the gas stove and the clothes dryer and all the other appliances. Um, what's going to happen is as you see more and more communities adopting building electrification policies, and as more and more people get off of the gas system, those are less ratepayers to then pay for the aging gas system. And as there's less ratepayers and less throughput, that means you need to increase the rates on the customers that are still there. And that's gonna make it more cost-effective to uh, then electrify and more cost-effective to adopt additional policies. And so more people will defect from the gas system. And pretty soon what you'll have is you'll have a gas system that struggles to keep pressurized enough because everyone's gotten rid of their heaters and their water heaters, and you're running a gas system to allow people just to cook gas. And we've been told by some dual fuel utilities, that's their worst nightmare, that they're having to run a gold-plated gas system and charge everybody $180 a month just to be able to cook with gas at really low low throughput. Um, That's the the death spiral, really. Yeah, exactly. The other challenge is really that health one that I brought up, and that when you're burning gas in your kitchen, you're releasing not only nitrogen oxides, but also carbon monoxide and formaldehyde, and um, each of those are dangerous in their own right. Nitrogen oxide is one of the major precursors of asthma and an asthma trigger, and really damaging for sensitive uh, receptors such as children and older people. So we have amazing technology now. You know, induction cooking technology is absolutely incredible. It's twice as twice as powerful as gas, three times better controlled than gas. Um, but super easy to clean, really safe. But if you really want flame in your house, my guess is that a number of people will probably move towards like a propane, some sort of a propane situation where you have a tank on site, um, and you have propane that allows you to still have flame-based cooking. Um, I would say three quarters of the people are going to move towards, um, electric cooking. Um, once people have just like just like test driving an EV, you don't really understand it until you get in it. Once you test drive an induction stove for a while, it just blows your hair back, just like an EV does. And so I think a lot of people will will move towards that, but I think some will probably move towards something like a you know a green propane solution in the future.
0: I, I've been watching the hydrogen world pretty carefully and the green hydrogen markets evolving and. Would it would the building decarbonization coalition be in favor of, uh, let's say, a, a large building that swapped out its old oil or gas heating equipment and put in a, a a green hydrogen solution? Or is that I know I saw that you really you're talking about clean energy options for buildings, not necessarily electricity, but is that are you do you have a position on that?
1: Green hydrogen is going to play a really important part of our transition off of fossil fuels. Um, The reality is that for a long time, green hydrogen is going to be very expensive. Um, And so we need to make sure that we use this precious resource in the most productive way possible. And using that in order to heat water so i can take a shower it's just not the highest and best use for that you know we need to be focusing green hydrogen on sectors that are really hard to electrify if you think about creating green hydrogen, what you're basically doing is you're taking renewable energy that you're capturing, say, from solar panels or wind farms, and then you're converting that into the storage system of hydrogen. And then you're converting that again um, to be able to release the energy um, to provide heat. And that's a really inefficient process. If instead you can just use that clean electricity and put it right into a heat pump to heat your space. to heat your water. And so I sometimes compare, you know, using green hydrogen for low value end uses like space heating or water heating. It's like washing your hands with fine wine. Um, You can do it, um, but it's just not a really good use of a really precious resource. Um, The other big challenge is that hydrogen is increasingly, we're finding it is potentially an even larger greenhouse gas impact than than carbon dioxide when released into the atmosphere. And it is a much harder uh, molecule to contain than CH4, which which is what natural gas is. And so you can't just put hydrogen um, into our existing natural gas system. You really will need to completely replace our natural gas system um, if you're going to be even blending in of green hydrogen. And so we need some honest assessments of what the true economic costs of increased reliance upon um, green hydrogen will be. My guess is we end up having very specific green hydrogen only pipelines that go to certain industrial and commercial sites, and that'll be the vast majority of the use. That's like, like the Angeles link that SoCal Gas is proposing right now is uh,
0: that dedicated, brand new dedicated pipelines for very specific uses. Um, what, what would you say are the, uh, like to wrap up, um, last couple of questions. What, what are the next steps? It sounds like your building decarbonization coalition is going really well. You have a, a hundred cities that have passed ordinances, uh, thanks to at least in part your works. What are the next steps for the, your group? Is it just
1: carry on? It's a great question. The the 2020s are going to look very different than the 2030s. Um, The 2020s are all about working with the existing workforce, the existing installers of HVAC equipment and water heating and electricians to capture as much market share as possible. um, To really align the supply chain. So that we're sending really clear signals to manufacturers, distributors, and installers about this is the way the market's going. These are the dates where there's no longer going to gas appliances won't allowed to be sold anymore. And this is the transition that you're going to be on. So really aligning the supply chain to get them ready for it. Um, And educating, educating policymakers, customers, um, and the market. That's going to be what the 2020s are about. The 2030s are going to be about scale. And instead of doing this when your water heater breaks or when your furnace breaks, it's going to be about taking whole neighborhoods off of the gas grid at a time, what's called zonal decarbonization. And I know now you're thinking, Ted, it's like, you know, Panama, I didn't really bring you on the podcast to be telling me fairy tales. Um, This is real. Um, Right now, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, the largest utility in America, has a proposal in front of the California Public Utilities Commission to completely electrify um, California State University Monterey Bay. Um, 350 buildings, 620 residential units. It's one owner, and so that helps. But basically, there's an old pipe built by the military before the military handed that site over to the CSU system um, to turn it into a university. That needs to be replaced and PG&E has done the analysis and they found that it's actually going to be a cheaper, a savings to ratepayers to electrify that whole campus rather than to replace that pipeline. And so they proposed to the public utilities commission, Hey, let's save ratepayer funds by just electrifying everything and CSU is is supportive of that. They have hundreds of other projects across their territory that are neighborhood scale where it's going to be more, where they have pipeline replacements coming up and they've done the analysis and it's going to be more cost-effective for them just to electrify everything. So we are on the precipice in California of having a policy that will actually allow us to move forward on this. And what we need to work on over the next five years is creating... The policy framework so that by the time we hit the 2030s we're able to do that at scale and we're able to have good paying jobs likely union labor um, doing high quality work um, installing very good products and getting paid well doing it at scale taking whole neighborhoods off and so that's what we're working on in 2020s it's about alignment of policy the supply chain and consumer marketing And then in the 2030s, it's about scale. And unfortunately, I'll end here. Unfortunately, I think the reason we have to wait is because the political will isn't there yet. The political will to do stuff at scale isn't there yet. We haven't had climate impacts that have changed the political dynamic enough. And what we need to do in the 2020s is get ourselves ready for when the political will changes through, unfortunately, bad climate impacts so that we'll be ready to operate at the scale and the speed we need to meet our climate challenge.
0: Very well put. Very well put. Panama, thank you very much for joining me this afternoon. Please go get a cup of tea. I'm sorry I kept you talking for, for so long you you need a cup of tea and a little nap now. <laughs> I'll look forward to talking to you again, though. Thanks again for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me on the show and everything you do for the community, Ted. That's it. Thanks for listening
0: to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.